Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My whole childhood, I never had a bed. That's how Alba Trevino Hart opens her memoir called Barefoot Heart, Stories of a Migrant Child, in which she recounts her childhood as daughter of migrant farm workers. Barefoot Heart was selected as the book for the Common Literature Experience for Utah State University in 2009, which is when I spoke with Alba Trevino Hart. Hope you enjoy this one of my favorite interviews today. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and our guest today is Elva Trevino Hart, author of the autobiography. Uh, it's uh, called Barefoot Heart: Stories of a Migrant Child. Growing up in the 1950s, uh, Pearsall, Texas, southern Texas, working in fields there and uh, traveling uh, yearly for several years to Minnesota to uh, work on farms uh, there. Uh, all of the family involved, seven days a week for weeks on end until it rained, and then you got a little uh, break. And uh, segregated uh, Texas town, the Mexican side and the uh, gringo side, and uh, interesting uh, life story, Elva Trevino Hart, who then discovered uh, passion for reading, passion for education. That led her to a very different life, a college and a successful career with six-figure salary with IBM, and now is writing books. And uh, Barefoot Heart Stories of a Migrant Child uh, is an American Book Award winner, has won several other awards. Elva Trevino Hart, welcome to Access Utah. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. It's delighted, delightful to be here. We appreciate you uh, taking the time. Um, a, uh, a wonderful book, uh, Barefoot uh, Heart, and it really evokes uh, your childhood and uh, some of these experiences. Uh, close-knit family, some hard experiences uh, as well. We want to get into that uh, today. Maybe we could start, set the scene by having you read the prologue to the book, which, okay. uh, which really gets us into things. Terrific. Okay. I'm nobody, and my story is the same as a million others. Poor Mexican-American female child. We all look alike. Dirty feet, brown skin, downcast eyes. You've seen us if you've driven through South Texas on your way to Mexico. We're there, walking barefoot by the side of the road. During harvest time, there are fewer of us. We're with our families in the fields. Some of us grow up and move to the city. We work downtown and speak perfect English, and others of us stay, and I don't know which is better. Sometimes we move to places where people don't know. They don't know that underneath the wool crepe suit is a brown, barefoot little girl like me. Behind the university speak is a whole magic world in Spanish. We play the game well, and it looks as if we're happy. Sure, we're happy. But then, when we're flipping through radio stations on the way to the office, we get to the Mexican station, and they're playing our favorite corrido. It makes us long for mamacita, for tortillas, for the comadres and the tias, for dancing rancheras in the hot, sweaty night under the stars at the fiesta. Then the nine-to-five life seems dry as a stone and without a soul. How did we get here, we ask? I'll tell you. So I start each section with a, with a Mexican dicho, which is a proverb, a saw, and uh, the, part, the biggest part of the book is about my family as migrant workers, and the dicho that starts that is, Aunque seas muy grande y rico, necesitas del pobre. Chico, though you may be wealthy and tall, you'll still need the poor and the small. Mm. Uh, and uh, I mean that uh, describes migrant workers. 
Yes. Still need the, at least in the eyes of other people, uh, the poor and the small. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So tell me a little bit about your family. Uh, They come through very clearly uh, in the book. Your father, very hardworking. Uh, Sounds like could outwork anybody. Um, and you describe him as not understanding children that well. He, he expected you to behave as small adults. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. He didn't understand children very well. He thought we could all, uh, all and should want to work. And I think it's because he worked his whole life. And he just expected that that's what you did. And so uh, I kind of appreciate that on one hand, that he treated us as adults instead of inferiors. Uh, but again, it, it made it hard because a lot of time because we weren't adults and and uh, we were children and and sometimes wanted to act like children. But sometimes I feel like I I didn't have a childhood like I I was uh, an adult right away. Hmm. Uh, and your mother, uh, you she would um, uh, she had a hard time with uh, with you know with this life. I think she understood at, at some points that your father's just trying to you know get more money for the family. It was hard uprooting the family from Texas, go to Minnesota every year for several years. You did describe your mother as a very good listener. She'd go down the rows, and sometimes if a woman was in the next row uh, working the crops, she could get the woman talking uh, by being a very good listener. Yes, my mother was a good listener. Uh, she was not a good talker. She would not tell stories. It was my father that was a storyteller. And when I, when I would ask my mother to tell stories or ask her about her childhood or things like that, she she wasn't very forthcoming. It was my father that the, that was the storyteller. And in our family, it was his father that was the storyteller. Hmm. So uh, they both your parents come from Mexico? Actually, my mother was born in Texas, mm-hmm. and my father was born in Mexico. He came when he was 11, in 1911, to escape the, the Mexican Revolution. My grandfather brought them because he had three older sons, and he didn't want them to be taken away as, uh, as fighters in the, in, in the Army. He didn't believe in, in, in that, and so he brought them to the U.S. Mm-hmm. You write, uh, in fact, this is the beginning passage, if we would have gone on just past the prologue. You write, in the, the whole of your childhood, you never had a bed. Youngest yes. of six, yes. so you're always the one on the cot or the pallet or the, or whatever the alternative, <laughs> yes, uh, bedware was. Uh, so tell me about uh, life in Pearsall. Uh, first of all, is Southern Texas. Yes, South Texas, and a lot of people don't know when when issues of segregation come up, people think about Alabama and Little Rock, but there was segregation in Texas too, and it was a little different in that. Uh, there was typically the railroad tracks and the Mexicans were on one side and the and the white people were on the other. When court-ordered segregation came in the late 60s, then we were integrated. And uh, But in some towns, really resisted the integration. Like in Hondo, which is 30 miles away from Pearsall, they put the Mexicans in one wing of the school and the white people on the white kids on the other wing. So they called that integration because they were all in the same building, even though they were in separate wings. And in Del Rio San Felipe, the schools were segregated all the way through K through 12, had different administration, different superintendent and everything. And and they were finally integrated in 1973. But people tend to not know that there was segregation like that in South Texas. And you're right, uh, on the Mexican side of town in Pearsall, roads yes. weren't paved, much right. more likely to be paved on the on the gringo side. Yes. Just one example. Yes. The roads weren't paved. Uh, we had our own cemetery. They had their own cemetery. We had our own grocery store. They had their own grocery store. Um, but we didn't have a bank on our side of town. So mm. if we needed some money, we had to go to the other side of town. Mm. Even the awards I read were 
segregated in, in a way. You won the award for best or, or highest points for a Mexican yes. girl. Yes. And there was another award for highest in the school, I guess, but you had the, the Mexican award. Yes. Uh, so even though even though they said we were integrated, they still there was still segregation practiced. Like when I graduated from the eighth grade, I got the High Point Mexican Girl Award. And there was another girl that got High Point White Girl Award. I think they called it White High High Point Anglo Girl, and there was High Point Mexican Boy, High Point Mexican, uh, High Point uh, Anglo Boy, and then when my sister was uh, elected football sweetheart by the football players, it was the first time a Mexican girl had ever been elected football sweetheart. So the administration said, "Well, we can't just have a Mexican football sweetheart. We'll have to have another election and elect a white football sweetheart." So then they had two football sweethearts that year. Hmm. Did you have uh, Anglo friends? It, it, it was was there were there friendships or was it uh, divided that way? Um, it was divided. Mm-hmm. We had friendships. Like I was in the band, and Edie and Janice and all those people were in my flute section, and or in the clarinet section next door. And we would joke. And on the way to the bus trips, on the bus trips, we would sit together and joke. But but after school, everybody went to their own side of town, and we never visited each other in each other's homes. And it was understood that we wouldn't date. And, uh, and wouldn't hang out together. Hmm. Uh, one passage in the book, uh, your sister Delvira yes. uh, was mortified that the family was leaving to go to Minnesota. Yes. How could she explain that? In fact, she didn't explain it. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow, she said, and, <laughs> and the, the, the classmates didn't see her until, uh, you know, after the, uh, when you got back in the fall. I, I guess th- this was a source of embarrassment? Yes. Yes, uh, the the fact that you were going to ride in a truck in the back of a truck, and uh, with another family, and go to work in the fields in Minnesota and live in in shacks on the farmer's uh, property and all of that. So it was it was uh, my sister considered it uh, embarrassing mm-hmm. that that we were going to do that and that we could we didn't have a stable family situation where you know things that were considered normal. But instead, we had to do this for our for our livelihood and to survive. Was this embarrassing to her uh, with respect to the Anglos or to the other Mexican families as well? Well, even there's always uh, substrata. There's mm-hmm. always divisions, and and you like to be. Uh, no, it wasn't with the Gringos because we didn't even speak to the Gringos uh, for the most part, and certainly not about personal things like that. It was uh, even with with her friends that weren't going to be going um, to Minnesota, but that were staying in Pearsall. Hmm. We're talking with Elva Trevino Hart on the program today. She's our guest for the hour. Barefoot Hart, Stories of a Migrant Child, uh, winner of American Book Award, among other awards, uh, published, I believe, in 1999? Yes, May of 99. Um, And the story of uh, her childhood, uh, every year for several years, they would travel from South Texas to Minnesota to work in the fields. Uh, hard work, the entire family involved, and uh, life in Pearsall, Texas, in, in South Texas as well in the 1950s uh, is outlined in the book. And an uh, interesting personal journey as well. Elva Trevino Hart uh, discovered a passion for learning. We'll talk about that a little later in the program and uh, ended up working six-figure salary for IBM, a whole different world. Uh, and then later on, reconnected back with, with some of these experiences. Uh, we'll talk about that as well. Uh, by the way, uh, parenthetically, you have a new book coming out. Yes. 
Yes, uh, my publisher has promised me. It's it's uh, the working title was uh, the Maids of San Miguel, but now it's uh, the title has been changed to Simpaticas, San Miguel stories, and it's short stories. It's fiction set in Mexico in San Miguel de Allende. Mm-hmm. And what's uh, you were telling me before we went on the air to uh, tell our listeners what's interesting about San Miguel? Well, San Miguel has a lot of American expatriates that rec- that retire there. It's thousands of American expatriates that live there. It's about three hours northwest of Mexico City. And they retire there because of the climate and because it's up in the mountains and it's beautiful. It was declared a national historical landmark in 1920. So there's still cobblestone streets and, and the churches that were built during the silver mining area. So it's a it's a beautiful town. But all of these Americans that retire in San Miguel or go to live in San Miguel, they all have Mexican maids. And I'm interested in writing about the seam between the cultures. And I felt like I had written some about how it was, how the seam worked in the United States. And I wanted to write about how it would work in Mexico, where the Mexicans are on their home turf. And it's the Americans who have come to live there to enjoy the the town, the city and the climate. Hmm. We'll look forward to that. Uh, let's talk about the, the, the trips to Minnesota. The first mm-hmm. one, you were three years old. Yes. Uh, the family didn't have a car yet. That came later. Yes. And so a, a fellow named El Indio right. and his family, he was going to go. And so your your father, uh, I guess, hitched a ride for his family in in a corner of their truck. Yes. Uh, tell me a bit about that, that trip. It was uh, three days and and uh, some hardship, and but I guess for you, a three-year-old, uh, it, it was a great grand adventure. Yes, it was a big adventure, and and uh, people wonder about my memories from that age, and I I feel like um, people re- have different r- recall. Like there's some people that recall almost nothing about their childhood. And I recall a whole lot of things, very early memories from when I was two. And I've checked them out with my family, and and sure enough, it it happened. So I have a lot of early memories. And they say also that the things you remember are the things that have high emotion in them. And that first trip to Minnesota in the back of the truck certainly had a lot of high emotion for myself and for my whole family. My brothers and sisters had never been on a trip like that. My parents had been uh, to Arizona to pick cotton, so they had been on trips similar to that. But now we were all going um, with very few resources and with borrowed money to Minnesota to work in the beet fields and then on to Wisconsin to pick green beans and tomatoes and cucumbers. And so we knew we wouldn't be back in town for months. And so we had to pack um, minimal things because they were doing us a favor, taking us in the back of the truck along with their family. And so it was a, a, a big hardship for most of my family. But for me, being a child, it was all an adventure. And I think that's where my love of travel started. Hmm. You still love traveling? Yes, I do. Yeah. Um, no stops, no, no, no potty stops. No potty stops. They did have, of course, stops for gas, but the driving was continuous. It was El Indio would drive, and then his son would drive, and then my father would drive, and so they would all take turns driving. So, But it was a big truck that I'm sure had a governor on it or that didn't let you go above 40, above 40 or 45 miles an hour, and it was it was uh, the early 50s, so it was a, uh, a big truck and and heavily loaded and all of that. So so th- there were there were stops for gasoline and you could go to the potty then if it was available but there were no potty stops and so we had to we had a little place in the corner of the uh, of the back of the truck fixed up for that and it was very embarrassing for my mother and for my sisters to have to use it. Um so it all felt 
uh, for them, shameful and degrading and like that. I never had that, the, the feelings of shame and degradation. I think I was just too little until I was an adult and started writing about it. And I met some of the people and talked to some of the people. And then some of those feelings came. Mm. This must have been uh, a, the fear of the unknown, a lot of nervousness among your siblings, at least. Yes. You know, the, 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 what they've known in Pearsall, South Texas, now we're going to, you know, essentially foreign land. Yes. And and they were going to, um, they ended up going to school. They didn't know when we left that they were going to have to be in school. But uh, the school year wasn't over in Minnesota. And the farmer we were staying with would be in trouble if he had migrant workers on his camp that weren't, that where the children weren't being sent to school. So they ended up having to go to school. And that was really hard for them, having to enroll in a school that where they knew no one. It was the end of the school year. And, uh, and they had to enroll themselves because my parents spoke no English and didn't know anything about enrolling. So they just got on the bus and had to do everything themselves. One of you tell me just briefly the story about your brother, I think it was Luis. Um, on that trip, he couldn't stand being cooped up. He'd always be toward the back of the flap. <laughs> right. Uh, this truck that we went to Minnesota in, it was a, it was a, had a wooden flatbed and, and wooden supports on the side and on the top. And so it was like a tent sitting on a flatbed truck. And, uh, so my brother Luis, he hated being cooped up. So he was always, there was a little flap where you went in the, in the, in the, on, on the flatbed of the truck and where you got out of. And so he was always sitting at the flap, uh, looking out, uh, seeing the scenery, because he also likes to travel, and, and it was kind of an adventure for him. And so one time they stopped for a stop sign, and he thought they were stopping for gasoline. So he jumped out of the truck and uh, ran uh, to exercise his legs, and then it turned out it wasn't a, uh, a gasoline stop at all, but just a, for a stop sign. And so the truck continued on, and we had a, a really hard time getting the attention of the drivers because the truck was so loud. We had to bang on it and, and get them to stop, and it, it took a while, and we had to turn around, and it was... Uh, Luis was mortified, and my father was angry, and it was a big deal. But as you write in the book, that was just Luis. He he had to he had to be out out and about. Yeah. Yes. Uh, also, your your brother Rudy was the one that would crack up. He, he was the crack up. You you write that uh, as three year old, four year old. One of your favorite uh, things would be to to lie with your head in your mother's lap, and when he would get the family laughing, that you'd fill your mother's belly moving yes. with with laughter. Yes, yes, those are, those are, uh, he, he, it was kind of a dry wit and a dry humor, but he was the one that could come from left field and make everybody laugh. <laughs> and, uh, and so we really appreciated that about him, and, and he does that to this day. Hmm. We'll uh, continue this conversation, get into some of the experiences in the fields in Minnesota, what that life was like. We'll have uh, Elva Trevino Hart read a little bit more from her book, get into later years, and, uh, and, uh, some conclusions that she's drawn from her experiences growing up as a uh, the migrant child. Barefoot Heart Stories of a Migrant Child is the book. We'll be back after this brief break. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu slash hr. Stress is a normal reaction to the over-decreasing demands of life, but learning how to control and handle stress can better improve your quality of life. Start out with identifying the source of your stress. Having the knowledge of what your stressors are and where they come from can help you learn how to handle them. Look at how you currently cope with stress and either change the situation or change your reaction. 
Avoid unnecessary stress. Alter the situation, adapt to the stressor, accept the things you cannot change, and make time for yourself. Taking a walk outdoors, drinking a cup of tea, calling up a friend, meditation and deep breathing are just a few things you can do to relieve some stress. This is Nicole Jackson for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Remember to live well, work well, and be well. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Apogee Instruments, a Cache Valley company building precision sensors that support global research in sustainable food production, renewable energy, and climate change. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Tom Williams here. And today we are reaching back in the archives. We are hearing one of my favorite interviews from the past. This is from 2009. Alva Trevino Hart talking about her memoir, Barefoot Heart, Stories of a Migrant Child. Alva Trevino Hart was on the USU campus in August of 2009. Her book was selected that year as the USU Common Literature Experience book. Hope you're enjoying the interview. Well, thank you for staying with us through the break. We are talking with Elva Trevino Hart author of Barefoot Heart, Stories of a Migrant Child, growing up in the 1950s in Pearsall, Texas, South Texas, and uh, annual trips to Minnesota to uh, uh, help with harvest there, and uh, life with uh, parents and uh, five other siblings. And uh, we'll get into uh, the rest of the story, which is a discovery of a passion for reading and for learning, and which took Ms. Hart to a six-figure salary with IBM, and then back to her childhood through this book and a new book uh, coming out. Maybe could have you read just a, a bit more? Um, sure. A, a passage uh, about what uh, life was like in the fields. By the way, it's hard work. Uh, as we've mentioned before, your dad had a capacity for work and a competitive streak, right? Yes. He, he wanted to outwork everybody. <laughs> <laughs> which, to the chagrin of your of, of your siblings, because they were out there with him, and uh, if he worked late, well, they were there as well, and, and for weeks on end, seven days a week, right? That's right. And and one of the things that I really like the students telling me when I come to visit students is that they had no idea what this was like, and they feel like through this book, they get a window. They get a window into the lives of migrant workers. Uh, typically, people say that uh, the migrant workers in the community are invisible. They see them at the store buying their groceries, but otherwise, other than that, they're they're invisible. So, so this book provides a window into the life, and and so I'll I'll read a li- little bit from that window. So this was in Minnesota. We were we were ha- doing the beet beet thinning in uh, in the early part of the summer. The the beets had a multi germ seed, so when you planted one seed, several beets would come up, and then you had to thin them down to one or two strong beets. So this was at the end of the day. So it says, The sun had gone behind the trees that separated one field from the next. My family was almost to the edge of the field where I waited for them, so I walked out to be with them for a while. The skinny legs and arms of all the kids were full of pain and felt heavy even though they weighed nothing. The hour had come when the hoe got very heavy. Yeah, Pa, say it's time to go home, Delmira whispered so Apa wouldn't hear. It sounded like a prayer. But Apa just continued hoeing as if it was nine o'clock in the morning. I had heard stories from Apa's nephews about the time he used to pick cotton. He had a reputation for being the best and the strongest. 
Appa had a competitive streak and a need to win and physical strength to match. Maybe he was a bit of an exhibitionist, too. He would start picking before daylight, using the headlights of the car to see. Now no one spoke. All you could hear was the sound of the hose slicing into the dirt. Hemantina, rebellious because she was tired, thinned out the long, large, strong plants and left the runty ones. And I noticed she looked at me suddenly as if to say, What do I care? When we were very close to the edge, we noticed that other people had started to put their hose into the trucks and cars and wait for the drivers. But we had our own car that year, and we could stay as late as Appa decided. I could see they were all scared inside, and this is what their faces said. And what if Appa says one more row? I'll either faint or cry, I don't know which. Please, God, make him tell us to go home. The rows are so long, I can't finish another one. The rows were actually half a mile long. Appa finished his row first. Late in the day, he worked faster than anyone else, not because he hurried, but because everyone else slowed down. He took out his handkerchief and wiped his face to be able to see better how much sunlight was left. The others finished their rows and leaned on their hose, awaiting Appa's decision. But the sun had already gone down and dusk had come. Bueno, hijos, for today, let's go home. Gracias a Dios, my mother said with her voice and we with our thoughts. The only thing I know is that I wouldn't have been able to finish another row, then Mira said as she put her hoe into the trunk of the car. No one else said anything when we got in the car. Everyone was torpid except for Appa. As always, he was full of life and energy. He looked out of the field as we drove away and he said, Here the dirt is soft, but not wet. When the hoe goes in well, in the morning, we'll stake out more rows than we did today. If we hurry just a little, we can do more. Delia closed her eyes and looked as if she wanted to die. When we got home, Delia and Delmira threw themselves on the bed like dead people. Luis looked at them and quickly ran out the front door and around the back of the house so he could cry alone. I ran after him. The tears came out fast and hot and he gritted his teeth tightly so he wouldn't scream. He shouldn't, he shouldn't, Papa shouldn't make the girls work so hard. Me and Rudy, yes, we're men but they're girls and they shouldn't be used like this. The fact was they were all adolescents. He wouldn't look at me as he talked, but he scanned the sky desperately as if he might find an answer written there. The rage in his eyes melted into despair, and he went to hide in the outhouse to finish crying. Appa sat on the front steps to file the blades of the hose so that they'd go in more easily the next day. For my mother, there was still a lot to do that day. She washed her hands and face and went to see what there was for dinner. Fried potatoes and frijoles guisados, same as always. She looked at Delia and Delmira, and then she looked at me and said, The girls look so tired. What can I make for them special today? Gravy. I haven't made gravy for a while. And she measured out white flour to make tortillas for eight. Delia dragged herself up off the bed when she heard Ama getting flour out of the canister. Ama, what can I help you with? Her voice was soft and her eyes looked old, even though she was still a teenager. Nothing, mija. I'm not tired. Lie down for a while. Mm. I guess that uh, that particular part of it could describe, I guess that's what women could tell men the world over. Uh, after this hard day, your mother's day wasn't over. Right. She started first in the morning and she finished last yeah. at night. Yeah. That must have been, that must have been very hard. Yes. Uh, including being uprooted from her life in, in Pearsall. Yes. Where, for a time, you lived uh, act on the actual land where her mother had lived. Yes. And you you write, uh, stood out to me in the book, uh, it was a kind of a ruin of a house 
or or what? Yeah, it was an unpainted house, mm-hmm. and uh, my mother, my the house where my grandfather, where my grandmother and grandfather lived, had a had a dirt floor, so it wasn't much of a house, um, but it was theirs. And but your mother would go and and sweep that. Yes. Florida, still, no when we lived in the new house, yeah, she'd still go and and take care of it and sweep it in honor of her mother. Hmm. There was an incident uh, that I think maybe was emblematic uh, when you were first in Minnesota, the first few days. Uh, the farm wife brings some chickens over, and this, what she says, makes your sister mad. I wonder if you tell tell that one. Yes. So, uh, so she, the farm wife, came and knocked on the door. And uh, my parents had actually gone to town to get some provisions because we didn't have any. We had arrived and we didn't have any food, so they went to town to get some. And so it was just uh, my siblings, my adolescent siblings and I that were at home. And so the farmer's wife came and knocked on the door and and she said, uh, whenever the migrants arrive, I clean out my freezer and I give them the, the, the food that's in my freezer and I stock it fresh. So I brought a couple of frozen chickens for you and... And uh, my si- it made my sister furious that we were getting old food that was being cleaned out. And she felt, again, a lot of shame and despair. And and so when the farm wife left, my sister slammed them on the table and said, we're going to throw these out. We're not even going to tell our parents that uh, that she gave us these. But the rest of us wouldn't let her. And and, uh, and so then when they got home, my father was actually glad. He, he thought that, you know, we were staying in a good place because they were helping us eat and giving us a place to live and things like that. But for my sister, it was a, it was a horrible thing. Mm. So how did the, uh, you know, so the farmer in this case, the, the farmers, how did they see the migrant workers? Well, I feel like I can't speak to that because mm. uh, we weren't a farmer, so I don't know how they saw the farmers. Mm. But um, I, I, when I, I was actually invited back to Minnesota to do a talk on the book, and there was two thousand people there, and those teachers from all over, and and so somebody came after me, up to me afterwards, and I was horrified to hear her say that uh, somebody in her class had said. I think I recognize this farm. I think I recognize this farmer. So they kind of had a class trip out to the farm and, and they were asking the farmer, why were you so mean and why didn't you care more? And I was mortified that they had done that because I don't think he was especially mean or bad. It's just the way things were then. And everybody did what they could to survive. And, and that, those were the mores of the day. And so I don't think he was especially bad or mean. He He just... Uh, you know, and and now the farmers can't provide housing for the for the workers, and so it's different now. People have to find their own their own housing typically. So, uh, so I don't know. And mm-hmm. to answer your question, I don't know. I feel like I can't speak for the farmer, but um, I don't think he was an evil man by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. On your travels, uh, I imagine you know driving down the road. Sometimes you you see migrant workers, migrant children. Yes. I uh, wonder what goes through your mind. Uh, you know, a barefoot girl yes. walking down the road. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think? What I think is that those are my brothers. Those are my sisters. Those are my cousins. Those are my aunts and uncles. And what I know is that they they have children that they love. They have grandmothers that they miss. They have aspirations for their children. They want the best for their children. And uh, so to me, they're not 
migrant workers. They're my family. Hmm. We're talking with Elva Trevino Hart on the program today. Uh, her autobiography, Barefoot Heart, Stories of a Migrant Child, tells the story of growing up in South Texas in the 50s and trips to Minnesota to work in the fields and uh, a trip, a journey through education to uh, Stanford uh, eventually yes. and, and to IBM and a uh, salary that your father probably couldn't even imagine. Later on, I mean, we'll jump ahead here and then go back. Um, I think your father asked you what you earned. Yes, um, he wanted to know how much I make and how, I made, how much I made. And and at the time, I was on a sales plan, and I was doing very well uh, selling multi-million dollar systems. And and uh, but I I felt like to actually tell him that would be presumptuous, and I didn't want to sound vain and and all of that. So I just answered that I that I made fifteen dollars an hour, hmm. and. Uh, and he was very proud of me that I was doing so well. And because I remember when I was about to go away to college, he said, well, uh, Mika, I actually, I'm glad. I'm glad that you're going off to school because that way if, and none of, none of my brothers and sisters had gone to school. So he said, that way, if someday you get married and your husband doesn't work out well, you'll be able to support yourself. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, my husband didn't work out. And I did have to support myself. <laughs> so I was a single parent working for IBM. And uh, and I was glad I'd gone to college. And my father was glad I'd gone to college. Hmm. Tell me how you uh, discovered your love for reading and, and uh, got into this, uh, this whole new world for you, which you described as a form of rebellion. <laughs> yes. Um, the public library in Pearsall didn't open until I was in the sixth grade. Before that, sometimes they would take us to the public library in uh, at the at the junior high when we were ele- in the elementary school, but not often. And so I felt like that was the biggest poverty at our house that there were no books. Um, and so when I discovered the public library, I started checking out books. It was in the summer when they opened, and I started checking out books every day. And I wanted to read all day long because I loved those worlds that they opened up for me that I that were so different from Pearsall. And it drove my mother crazy that uh, I was so obsessed with these books and she didn't know what was in them. There was no way she could ever know what was in them. And she'd ask me, well, what's in that book that you have your face in it all the time? And so, so I also felt guilty because my mother was a really hard worker. She was always cleaning, 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 cooking, all of that. So I felt like I should be helping her. And so I felt like... Um, this was this was taking away from the time I helped her. And it bothered her. It bothered her tremendously that I was such a voracious reader. So I started hiding the books and I started uh, trying to help her more so that she would leave me alone more when I did want to read. And so I, I felt like I, I was rebelling. I was doing things that she didn't wasn't comfortable with and didn't want me to do, really. And 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 so that was the way I coped with with her not wanting me to do it by hiding my my reading. What were some of the books that that, that you got into? There were a <laughs> well, lot, I'm sure. Initially, you know, it was the typical teenage books, the Nancy Drew series and and Sherlock Holmes. I loved Sherlock Holmes because I wanted I loved the way he figured things out. I wanted to figure things out that way. 
And I think that was also the beginning of my love for math, because in math, I love to figure things out and see how they worked and, and, and do it better than everybody. And, and so, of course, I read uh, My Secret Garden and, and things like that, uh, Francis Hodgson Burnett. So that's what I started with. And then I went on to Greek mythology. I loved Greek mythology. I loved stories about dancers. Um, I loved to dance and I wanted to, and, and the, the ballerina dancers that would dance until their feet bled, I, I, I really admired that. And it included, uh, I guess, up to Greek mythology, because later and I'll yes. have you tell about a key teacher for you, Mr. Derderian. Uh, in that passage, you, you talk about uh, some Greek mythology, so wide-ranging reading. Let's go to a caller, and I'll have you put on your headphones so you can hear this. And it's Richard in Menden. Welcome to the program, Richard. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate uh, this uh, program uh, feature. It brings back some warm memories uh, from Brigham City in the early 1950s as a high school student. Uh, I worked at a uh, Anderson Produce, a peach packing company, and I, I really enjoyed mingling with migrant workers, uh, uh, both uh, Mexican and uh, gringo, and uh, um, <clears throat> I was amazed at uh, the uh, ability of these uh, workers. Uh, we were uh, uh, shipping peaches by the carload to eastern markets, and uh, a number of these people were wrapping each peach with a tissue, and I was amazed at the speed that they could fill a box and move to the next. But anyway, I'll have to look up this book. Uh, it will uh, supplement my and highlight my memories of working in a peach packing plant over in Brigham City. So thank you very much for your program presentation. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. Appreciate appreciate those memories. Um, it, it kind of adjusted my thinking. I was thinking, you know, from the book, uh, South Texas, Minnesota. Of course, uh, these, uh, these experiences going on in Utah as well. Yes, yes, everywhere. California, mm-hmm. um Utah, New York, yeah, and, and Virginia, where I live now, the Eastern Shore. Uh, that's still going on now. Uh, my husband is on the governor's board that advises him on on uh, issues of migrant workers. So he was just out at the Eastern Shore, where there's um, hundreds of migrant workers there picking tomatoes, and uh, they pick a box of forty pounds in about twenty minutes. Do you think conditions, life? Or migrant workers, you know, how is it different today than, than from when you experienced it? Well, I, uh, if you work sun up to sundown outside doing hard physical labor, not much has changed mm-hmm. for that. Uh, I had the experience that I, I was asked to read at the Mexican embassy in at Washington, D.C., and after the reading, the consul came up to me and asked, uh, do you think anything's changed in 50 years? And what I told him is that uh, I said, this, there exists this program, there exists that program. And, and he looked at me skeptically. And then at the, when he, fin- he waited polite me, politely for me to finish, and th- at the end he said, I don't think anything's changed. He said, in fact, things are worse. Because for one example... My father, when he went to pick cotton in Arizona, he was a very experienced cotton picker, and 
he noticed that the scales were weighing low. He knew that were they were weighing way low. And he complained, and the guy said, no, you know, we had him checked. And my father didn't say any more. He drove into town and came back with the sheriff. And uh, sure enough, they had adjusted the scales to way low. And so my father, my father um, was able to get that problem fixed. Now, because people are a lot of times undocumented, they don't have recourses like that. So when somebody says, I promised you, Fifteen dollars an hour, but I'm going to pay you six. They, they have no recourse a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine there is that powerlessness, yes, feeling of powerlessness, yes, and yet you need the money. So right, yeah, yes, yeah, that must be. Uh, I could see where in, the, in today's political climate, maybe that has increased that that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to have you uh, tell me uh, about a trip to Mexico, which was important uh, in terms of uh, how you saw your father, I believe, and and how you maybe compared yourself um, where you were on the on the scale of poverty, because you you actually saw people poorer than you, which you probably didn't imagine there in in South Texas. Right. Right. Uh, we we went to Mexico when I was 17 and visited relatives, my father's cousins and things like that. And, and I saw my father transformed when he felt like he was in his native land with with his relatives and with his people. And it was an eye opener for me that uh, my we, we connected with some of my father's childhood friends and, and saw that their lives had been very different because they didn't leave Mexico. And my father had left Mexico and gone through all these experiences. And I don't know which is better. I, I, it was just different, but it was, it was shocking to see, to me, to see the poverty that was in Mexico, people begging on the street. Hmm. And uh, you could elaborate a little bit on how this changed your view of your father. Um. Yes, maybe, maybe I'll read a paragraph or two, and yeah. then I'll talk about that. So, my father was transformed when he went to Mexico. Here, he needed no one to translate for him. No one to interpret road signs or maps. There were no gringos here to bow before. He was in his element. He was like a fish that had been that had lived in a bowl for years, all of a sudden dumped back in the ocean. He became ultra-confident, giving big tips and talking to everyone. His eyes sparkled and he soaked up everything like a sponge. He wanted to take our Mexican relatives on trips to the Ojos de Agua, to Lampasos, to Monterrey. He paid for everything recklessly and laughed and told jokes constantly. He was a local boy who had gone to the U.S. and done well. He was home. So, uh, so, so, as far as how it changed my view of my father, it it broadened it because I only saw him as someone in the U.S. who was sometimes afraid to do things like he was afraid to buy land because he was afraid of going into debt, and so we never had much of anything. Um, and, uh, and, and yet his father had, had brought him to the U S when, when he was 11. So he had to survive here. So it, it made me see him as, as a survivor and, and he was a survivor. He, he had a, a dicho, uh, a proverb that said, yo no me preocupo, yo me ocupo, which means I don't worry about it. I just try something different. And for him, what that meant is if he tried something and it didn't work, he'd try something else. And if that didn't work, he'd try something else. And he kept going until something would work. He would. He was an eternal optimist, never wanting to give up. Hmm. What did your father think about uh, your 
reading, became a voracious reader and uh, interest in education. On one level, uh, it, I guess it had to please him because that was important to him to get his children educated. Uh, what did he think? Yes, he, it was important to him to get his children educated, but he, high school was as far as he could see. Like, he didn't ever imagine that college was something that was possible for his children. I mean, it was just not on his radar screen. And so when I told him I wanted to go to college, he was pretty taken aback. And But he said, well, if, if that's what you want to do, then I'll, I'll try to help you. So he did. He saved up some money. And the night of my high school graduation, he gave me $2,000 in cash. And I knew by then that $2,000 was about enough to get through one semester at the University of Texas, the state school that had in-state tuition and, and like that. But I didn't tell him that. I just, I just, you know, was sobbing and appreciating it because I knew it had been a huge sacrifice for him to save that money for me. And I don't even know where he kept it. We didn't have a bank account. Um, so I think he kept it in his pocket and put it in a paper bag under the mattress at night. But, uh, so so anyway, he, he and he didn't understand everything that it entailed. Like he was afraid. I think he was afraid for me to date in high school. So I wasn't allowed to date. And then when I was going to go take the SAT, a guy from school was going to give me a ride. So when he said, how are you going to get there to San Antonio to take the SAT? I told him, well, Joe Villarreal is going to give me a ride. He said, I don't believe it. I don't believe you're going to a school thing. I, I don't know where you're going, but I don't think you should, you're not going to go. And so <laughs> I was sobbing because he wasn't going to let me go take the SAT to get to college. And uh, so uh, he, when he saw how upset I was, he said, okay, well, you can go, but only if you take your older sister mm. with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my older sister had to go be a chaperone while I took the SAT. Mm. Well, too, we are running out of time, and I want to uh, move ahead and have you read a, a moving passage from the end of the book. Uh, so, you know, moving the story forward, you did end up at, at college, ended up at, uh, at Stanford for graduate work and got a master's, got into um, working for IBM, uh, computer uh, work, a computer executive, right, in sales and six-figure salary. and uh, But uh, things began to weigh on your mind. You began having... Uh, interestingly, gangster dreams, right? Which <laughs> uh, might set up the passage you're going to read. Yes. Um, let's see. Yes. So, so uh, I had all the trappings of success. I was driving a Mercedes, flying all over the country on business, and vacationing in the Caribbean. As Gloria Steinem said, I was becoming the man I had always wanted to marry. But the glamour of travel had long ago lost its appeal. Desperate for a change, I went back on sales quota with a couple of local universities as my territory. My IBM life didn't leave much time or energy for anything else. I gave my heart and soul to IBM, and they gave me money in return. But my soul was shriveling. And then one night I I had a gangster dream. Those are always my worst ones. The first role I play in this dream is a gangster who wants to pull out of the group I'm not really bad like the rest of them, so first I conspire with my other friends and family to smuggle the money out of the gangster house. Next, I'm the wife of the gangster, and it goes on to tell. Uh, Then I'm the Mexican maid of the gangster. When I'm walking around, I see tunnels going down into the earth with long, long escalators that I imagine go straight down to hell. There are two men on either side of the escalator urging me to come on down. I knew if I went down there, I would be cut off from everything that I had known. The whole block was small maids' houses. I'm condensing this a lot. Um, 
The dream was a blueprint for recovering my soul. As the dream spoke to me, my spiritual journey back to myself began. This is what the dream said to me. At IBM, I felt like a gangster, making so much money so easily when my family had worked so hard. So I began braving the dragons, going past them to that forgotten part of myself, my childhood, my Mexicanness. I started writing the stories I heard in my head, and the more I wrote, the more stories came. And we just have about a minute and a half left. Uh, maybe the sort of the rest of the story here. You, you through your writing, which yes. was at times painful. Yes, remembering some of these things, uh, you you came to reconnect. Yes, yes. Uh, it was. Uh, it, sometimes I couldn't keep writing because it was so painful and I was crying so much. But I reconnected and I felt like it. It brought me back to myself. And I'll just read the last. Um, I howled on the page. I saw how much power there is in embracing exactly who you are. For me, it is being a Mexican-American woman writer. I'm no longer alone. I found my pack. And you have since uh, quit IBM, I think? You've yes. You've gone to writing yes, I, full-time? I, I left IBM. I, went, I started taking writing classes. I, I've been doing that full-time. And what's amazing to me is that people invite me to places like this to speak to students, to speak at universities. My stories about being poor are about being poor and living in the dirt. And yet I get invited to, to universities, and I speak in front of hundreds of people. And it still amazes me, and I appreciate it very much. Hmm. This also helped reconnect you with your siblings. Yes. Right? You'd kind of drawn, drawn, you know, apart. And Yes. We connected in new ways and uh, started getting together again for no reason. Now we have yearly family reunions, but we get together much more often than that. Mm-hmm. How are they all doing? They, they've got lives of their own. I guess they... All of them are, are doing very well. Mm-hmm. I have a sister who lives on the beach in San Diego. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and everyone's retired, and, and uh, so, yes, they're doing very well. Yeah, yeah. The, and through these stories, I imagine that, that, especially the stories that connect to all of you with those times in Minnesota, I think you write that. Yes, it's amazing to me that they love the stories, and they, whenever there's a reading that's close by them, they go again because they want to hear the stories again and again. Mm-hmm. So tell me again uh, the next book. Um, it's uh, uh, what, The next book? Is, is called Simpaticas, San Miguel Stories. Mm-hmm. Any ideas beyond that? Uh, there, I'm working on a novel set in South Texas, uh, and then I would like to write a spiritual autobiography. Oh, interesting. We'll look for all of those uh, coming out. Elva Trevino Hart is author of Barefoot Heart, Stories of a Migrant Child, and it's a winner of the American Book Award, among other awards. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. It's been delightful to be here. Thank you for coming in, Elva Trevino-Hart, our guest. And thank you for listening to Access Utah. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, find out how John Wesley Powell's scientific exploration of Utah's river country turned into a harrowing journey through brutal and beautiful terrain. First, this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. More than 140 years ago, on August 30th, 1869, six men in two wooden boats emerged into open country from the high cliffs and rough waters of the Grand Canyon. They were blackened, bearded, emaciated, in rags, and down to their last stash of moldy flour. They were lucky to be alive. Three months earlier, Major John Wesley Powell and his crew of nine men had put into the Green River in Wyoming with gear and supplies sufficient for 10 months. 
The aim of the expedition was to explore and map the canyons of the Green and Colorado Rivers, which ran through the heart of Utah and the last uncharted lands in the continental United States. This was not a government expedition, but the personal passion of Major Powell, a one-armed Civil War veteran from Illinois and geology professor inspired by the promise of scientific discovery. Powell knew the trip would be dangerous, for rumors and Indian reports told of inaccessible canyons and raging water. He estimated the route to be about 300 miles long, but instead found the river ran more than 1,000 miles through a chain of majestic red rock canyons up to 6,000 feet deep and was as uncrossable and unrunnable as advertised. The party found trouble early on, with rapids taking one boat and most of their supplies. Fearful of losing their remaining food, not to mention their lives, they portaged where possible, but were forced to run many of the worst rapids. Unknown hazards loomed around every bend, and the crew grew impatient with Powell's scientific research. We surely will all die if we continue on this journey, they worried, but could not convince Powell to abandon the river. Ultimately deserted by four of his crew, Powell's focus on scientific precision eventually turned to basic survival. Powell did survive that first recorded run down the Colorado River and returned two years later to do it again. His surveys were crucial to the scientific study and opening of the region following the Civil War. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Most remember Steve Jobs for his groundbreaking work, but there are some shadier activities hidden on that resume. There was a level of malfeasance that was tolerated because he was who he was. I'm Molly Wood, the good and bad of one of the most iconic CEOs. Next time on Marketplace from APM. Thursday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. He's been compared to Mark Twain, influenced hip-hop, comedy, and a film movement. And you probably don't even know his name. Discover the contradictions of the pimp-turned-author known as Iceberg Slim. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Join us Thursday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.